0: Listeners are advised that all names and incidents portrayed in this episode have been altered to protect real-life persons. No identification with actual persons living or deceased should be inferred. John and Karen have been happily married for 40 years. In the last four decades, they've seen the world together. John worked hard from a young age and built a large estate for he and Karen to live well, to travel, and to comfortably raise their three boys – John and Karen are happy in the knowledge that they've prepared a will and that their business and financial affairs are in order. At peace, knowing that should anything happen to them, their assets would be distributed according to their wishes. Though both still have decades ahead of them. However, life's big moments have a way of happening. Things change slowly and then all at once. When Karen gets sick and passes away... This is a defining moment for John. Four years after Karen's death, John remarries Amy, slowly and then all at once. His three sons are challenged by the fact their new stepmother is not only their age, but also brings with her her own child, a 10-year-old boy. It's a familiar story of family tension, but that tension, that could perhaps work itself out over time, skyrockets when John suddenly dies. Life changes slowly and then all at once. He leaves behind three adult sons on the one hand, a young wife and a much younger stepson on the other hand. John's affairs, which he thought were in order, had not been properly updated since Karen's passing and his superannuation death benefits remain in flux. The first crack that would become a chasm of legal, financial and emotional conflict for the remaining family for years to come. You are listening to In Business with BDO. BDO experts powering business. Once upon a time, succession laws staked on primogeniture was standard fare. That is, declaring the deceased's main estate, be it humble or great royal household, would pass to the eldest child, more often the eldest son. Problematic perhaps, but certainly simple. Fast forward to 2020, as we contend with contemporary asset structures like superannuation and family structures growing more diverse and complex, estate planning within these new environments has never been so essential. Welcome to In Business with BDO, where we bring the experts to you and take a deep dive into the pool of complex issues facing Australians in the realms of business and finance. I'm your host, Jennifer Mary. And in today's episode, we're exploring estate planning and the big S, super.
1: We all think we're bulletproof and we'll live forever, but um, you know, there's nothing more certain is there than death and taxes.
0: That's Paul Rafton. He's specialised in superannuation for almost three decades.
1: I'm the national lead of superannuation here at BDO, and I'm a partner in the Brisbane office.
0: And Shirley
2: Schaefer. Superannuation partner with BDO based out of the Adelaide office, I've been working in self-managed superannuation fund, superannuation training, advice and problem-solving for over 20 years.
0: We're clearly in safe hands as we discuss the intricacies of estate planning in John and Karen's story.
1: The case study that we're talking about today is probably a blend of a number of clients that we've seen over the last 18 months or so, although we've changed a lot of the details to protect these individuals and their privacy. And effectively, what it demonstrates is the need to make sure your house is in order and not just assume that everyone's going to follow your wishes upon your death.
0: When uh, John remarried, did he rewrite his will?
1: He rewrote his will, that's right. But what he didn't do was have a look at how that extended to his superannuation fund. And then when he did turn his mind to it, he didn't execute the documents properly.
0: There's a reason we have superannuation experts in to talk about estate planning. In super lies one of the most misunderstood aspects of getting your house in order.
1: A lot of people assume that your superannuation fund will be dealt with according to your will and they're two completely separate areas of law and pots of money, if you like. So just because you've got a will and it may be enforceable, it may not always extend across to the superannuation fund.
0: One more time for good measure. Super is not included in your will. Superannuation
2: um, isn't an estate asset because it's held in a trust structure. So any assets held in a trust structure are excluded from a person's personal assets and therefore does not form part of their estate. As a consequence, there needs to be quite specific and separate instructions um, around what is to happen to monies inside trusts or superannuation funds in the event of death.
0: Why is it that it's my money that I've earned and it's in my super fund and yet it's not covered in my will? Because superannuation is a trust structure then it's
2: essentially those that you leave behind in charge of that structure that have the rights and the abilities to make decisions, particularly if there are no valid instructions or clear instructions, then it's the person or persons that you leave behind in charge of the fund that can make those decisions. And they may make decisions legitimately in their own favour and not in favour of the people that you wanted to get the benefit of it.
0: And that's where our leading man John came unstuck. He didn't formalise the instructions to his trustees.
1: So the trustee determines how to deal with your death benefit in the superannuation fund, the same as your legal personal representative of your will will deal with the rest of your estate and how to wind that up. They're not necessarily the same person and they may not necessarily agree. In this case, the second wife of John was about the same age as his three adult children. Mm -hmm. So it caused a bit of a a dynamic there in terms of the way things were dealt with. On the death of John, his son stepped in to be the trustee of the self-managed super fund, which is where a lot of the wealth was held in the millions. But there were some questions around the paperwork and the way that the son was appointed as a trustee of the super fund which gave the second wife a a bit of leverage in terms of challenging the way the death benefit was dealt with.
0: John was operating and left behind a self-managed super fund, but there are many other types of funds. Superannuation can be held in a variety
2: of different superannuation funds. The ones that we deal with mostly as advisors are the self-managed super funds where all members of the funds must be trustees or directors of the corporate trustee so, you're looking after it yourself. There are other superannuation funds which are large funds. They're commonly called APRA regulated funds, being APRA being the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, the body that regulates large funds. They'll either be industry superannuation funds, so set up around specific industries, and to give and these are just examples, but rest super around the retail sector, host plus super around
0: hospitality, those sorts of things. There are also retail funds that are established by profit making companies. The example Shirley gives for those kinds DT Super or Macquarie Super um, or AMP Super.
2: And then, of course, there's corporate superannuation funds. They're set up by specific
0: companies uh, and you have to be an employee of that company to be a member of the fund. And lastly, there are the government super funds. But according to our experts, as far as estate planning is concerned, there's not a huge amount of difference between them. Essentially, the rules are the same across all superannuation funds. It's just obviously size, scale
2: and rules and administration around how they're operated that are different.
0: But back to John and Karen. Okay, so immediately after John's passing, the money remained in the self-managed super fund or SMSF.
1: That's right. The money stayed in the super fund which was probably a good thing, so no one did anything illegal or tried to take money out of the environment. But what they did do was they they stagnated, paused and did nothing, which... Got the attention of the ATO eventually.
0: Uh huh. And so that situation happened because before John died, he hadn't set up the SMSF. That's
1: exactly right. The, the self managed fund was set up correctly during the course of of John and his first wife's existence. Yeah. But he assumed that on his death, his his eldest son would come in and be a co trustee of the super fund. Mm. But technically, what was required under the rules of that particular trustee for the self managed fund was for the son to. Agree in writing to be a trustee of the Superfund.
0: Okay, so he had said that his son would be the trustee when he died.
1: Yes, well, his his son came in as a co-trustee upon the death of his first wife, but he never formally accepted the appointment as a trustee.
0: So the paperwork wasn't there. The paperwork
1: wasn't there, which gave the second wife a, a bit of leverage in terms of challenging the way the death benefit was dealt with. What that caused for the the son was that he actually sat on his hands and was too scared to do anything for fear of getting it wrong until they got a letter from the ATO to say you hadn't lodged your returns and we're going to take away half of your assets potentially. So that certainly got their attention and then got them at least to the negotiating table where over the course of about two years we negotiated a settlement around the super. Paperwork seems
2: like
0: a mundane thing, but it's critical in these situations paperwork, as well as making sure the inherent structures of your fund serve you. Paul, what self-managed super fund structures are the most appropriate for ensuring control of the outcomes after death?
1: Generally, it's important to have a corporate trustee rather than individuals. If we go back to our case study here, we had John and Karen were individual trustees. So that required that we had to bring in Steve as another trustee of the superannuation fund, caused a lot of angst in terms of paperwork. Had we had a corporate trustee in place, then it would have been just a matter of Steve becoming a director of that corporate trustee and the fund would have continued on potentially as if nothing had changed.
2: The other thing that a corporate trustee will do is provide for a bit more of ease of administration and paperwork, particularly in the event of the death of one of the members, because all of the fund assets are held in the name of the trustee. So if, they, if that's individuals rather than a corporate entity, then on the death of one of those individuals, then potentially there's a lot of work to be done from a purely administrative point of view just to get assets into the right names being held correctly. Whereas if it's a corporate trustee, it's in the name of the company. It's simply the directors perhaps that are changing behind the scenes. Uh, And while that might not seem important, it's a time-consuming process. And if you're relying on others to do that for you,
0: It can be a costly process as well. Yeah, so the corporate trustee is a lot more enduring because it doesn't change when, when the members or the trustees die. That's right. So in John and Karen's case, what could they have done while John was still living? So the options um, before his death would have been
2: to um, update or renew his binding death benefit nomination to ensure that it is directed where he wants, probably his estate in this instance, or he could have specifically identified beneficiaries to receive proportions or amounts of money direct from the
1: superannuation fund. Or we could also put in place another structure is what's called a death benefit rule, which is something that's embedded within the trust deed of the superannuation fund. These sort of things aren't set and forget. We generally recommend that our clients review them regularly, at least every three years, even if they don't require renewing, and then obviously change them and address them if their circumstances change. So in this case here with John, He should have addressed things shortly after Karen died and then again when he re-partnered with his second wife, but he didn't do any of that.
2: The other one around the binding nomination process that I just wanted to clarify was that it doesn't have to just be a single nomination. It can actually be um, what is commonly referred to as a cascading nomination. So then in the first instance, the nomination may have been to John's first wife. In the event of her death, then the nomination goes on to say that it goes to the estate or something else um, that is appropriate, so that you can
0: actually put in place things that will happen in the event of changed circumstances. Paul is clear to stress, however, that binding nominations aren't for everyone.
1: Some people, if they're in a relationship where they have a spouse and they believe that there's no chance of a challenge will not have any kind of nomination they'll just expect their spouse will follow their wishes and their intentions and yep. the money will will be dealt with according to their intentions.
0: So uh, a binding nomination is especially important in a situation where the family is a bit more diverse.
1: That's right we're seeing more and more blended families now um, in this case we've got a you know a second marriage with a mm. a young child coming into the relationship where John actually cared for and provided for that son. So those kind of dynamics are not uncommon anymore. And it's important that they're, as I said, road tested and um, a binding nomination is not always the case and not always the answer, but it's certainly important to make sure that it's considered. And if it is, that it's been dealt with properly Mm. and that the nomination is executed according to the deed.
0: And it's not just enough to know the options. Part of Paul and Shirley's day-to-day is telling people when to use them.
1: A lot of people and a lot of younger people, they'll put a death benefit nomination in and they'll put in favour of their parents. And under the rules, that's not allowed. It has to go to a spouse or a dependent. It's amazing how many of those I see ill-informed people that, that think it's OK to leave their money to their mum. And it's making sure you get those, those issues correct.
0: In our case study, as Paul already mentioned, the family was forced to act when the Australian Taxation Office came knocking. And the tax consequences of superannuation are a whole other bag. Just when you thought, I'm getting a handle on this, in walks the ATO. And as Paul has already covered... There's
1: nothing more certain, is there, than death and taxes.
0: What are the income tax consequences of superannuation death benefits and can this be managed?
1: It can be managed. It depends on a whole lot of things, who who the benefit is being paid to. It also depends on the components of the death benefit. So it requires individual advice. There's no one-size-fits-all and there's no simple solution in terms of managing tax. But sometimes... Getting the right outcome from an estate point of view um, causes tax consequences. And then on other times, if you're trying to avoid tax completely, you may not get the estate outcome you're looking for.
0: It's clearly a fine line to walk with your advisors. But in terms of the who that Paul alluded to, Shirley has us covered on the current laws. It's important to distinguish between um, tax dependent and
2: a non-tax dependent. So this is defined under the income tax law and Paul said it can get quite complicated. Generally speaking, a tax dependent is going to be a spouse, a child under the age of 18 or with a disability, somebody who's in what's called a a financial dependency relationship or somebody in an interdependency relationship. So benefits paid to tax dependents will generally be paid to them without income tax consequences. Benefits paid to non-tax dependents, which are largely adult children,
0: are going to have potential income tax consequences. If tax consequences weren't complex enough, laws around estate planning and super are also constantly evolving. One of the most significant changes to superannuation in recent years was in 2017, when new legislation around transfer balance cap altered the landscape substantially. It's the law that set a limit on how much money from super you could transfer into the retirement phase, and it had big consequences.
1: If you're a member of, a self, or of any superannuation fund and you've got more than $1.6 million, That's okay. What the rules require is you can only have $1.6 million in pension phase at any one time. So in terms of if you had $3 million in in a superannuation fund and you weren't in pension phase and you met a condition of release, you could move $1.6 across into a, a pension phase, then you could leave that pension potentially to your spouse as a reversionary pension, subject to their own individual transfer balance cap as well. So with
0: John and Karen in that scenario, if John was planning out his estate, he'd have to be really conscious of Karen's personal transfer balance cap to make sure that what he leaves in his super to her, if she goes above the $1.6 million, then she'll have to pay a high tax on that?
1: No, she wouldn't have to pay a higher tax. The, the money wouldn't be allowed to stay in the super environment, so it would be forced out into her own personal hands rather than being allowed to stay in super.
0: Sorry, what's the advantage of keeping money in a super environment?
1: Well, if it's in a super environment, it's taxed up to 15%. Yeah, that's if right. If it falls out into someone's personal hands, then it can be taxed at their margin the earnings or okay. be taxed at their normal rate. The rules are really designed to make sure that you're not using super as an estate planning vehicle.
0: Does that mean you're not using super to avoid paying tax? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, What it does mean is that ultimately SNSFs
2: and superannuation itself have used by dates because when there's no longer a tax dependent, you know, a child under the age of 18 or a spouse there to take any death benefits of pensions, then the money has to come out of super. Whereas superannuation funds could go on for a considerable period of time, they certainly won't be able to going forward and certainly not with the same level of other monies in them. So if you're paying a death benefit pension after death, it's going to be only up to the transfer balance cap amount of 1.6, subject to the recipient's own transfer balance cap. But it does mean the rest of the money has to exit the superannuation environment.
1: The transfer balance cap applies to our members superannuation across all of their super funds so where you have a a member who may have some money in a self-managed fund and they may have another pocket of money in an industry or retail fund that comes into the mix as well in terms of managing that transfer balance cap so that requires for us as advisors to understand exactly what our clients have and where it's held and again consider all those different components and then manage the tax outcome of that as well
0: Although it's important to understand the transfer balance cap laws, the ATO estimates that changes will impact only 1% of Australians. What's more common is the circumstance our case study subjects found themselves in. And if you're wondering how John's story ended...
1: In the end, this particular case, we had the ATO chasing the trustee yes. to do something. Yeah. So it had a significant amount of money that was in the millions of dollars. And the ATO's threat was that they could make the fund non-compliant which potentially means losing about half the assets in the fund. So that certainly brought all the stakeholders, as I said, to the table to talk. Um, And then what ended up happening was that there were some questions around Steve's appointment and validity to act as a trustee. So we had to get lawyers involved for each of the stakeholders and they ultimately put together a deed where they agreed that Steve could continue to act. Steve was reluctant to do anything for fear of being penalised personally by the tax office or others as well. Um, particularly when you know he had his, his stepmother as a potential litigant if he did something wrong. Mm-hmm. So that was what caused him initially to freeze and do nothing, that he thought it was better to do nothing than, than try to do something to rectify things and get it wrong. He ultimately had to act. They all agreed that he was allowed to act, and they got to the table where they were going to sign a deed that would allow him to continue to prepare the financials that were outstanding and move the money across to the estate. When we came unstuck was that, within the estate, John had actually left a substantial amount of money to a nephew, and that required then for him to also agree to sign off on all of the documents. The amount that he was left was was a a couple of hundred thousand, which is not insignificant, but when he realised that there was a significantly greater amount that was available, he actually withdrew his consent to the documents until he increased his stakeholding and, and his allocation. So again, it was just another, another spanner in the works that we almost got to the table of resolving things and we had something come left to feel that hadn't really been road tested, you know, about what happens if Nephew A decides he wants more at the end of the day.
0: Paul talks a lot about road testing, but what does it actually look like?
1: So in terms of road testing with our clients, what I generally tend to do is play devil's advocate and ask them what would happen if, you know, you've got three children, they all get on very well now, what happens if one of them decides to do a Prince Harry and leave the family? How is that going to look or how does that impact on your estate planning? Would you have to sit down and and reformulate your structure? And the answer is probably yes. Most of us as parents, I think, expect that our kids will all get on well and do what we want after we're dead history shows that's not really going to always be the case.
0: So, Paul, with uh, many family units comprising diverse structures, how can we even ensure that our nominated beneficiaries receive our superannuation benefits?
1: Well, that's, that's a difficult one. It's making sure, as we've talked about, that all the paperwork's in place. I always suggest to clients that they talk to them while they're alive and let them know what their intentions are. A lot of us have got, particularly where it's a, a, not a very nice conversation to have, a lot of us tend to put our head in the sand and think let's let them worry about it after I'm, I'm dead i generally suggest that have the fight now if you're going to let them know and at least then you're around to arbitrate because you can't rule from the grave
2: i think the other thing that people need to bear in mind and i think you know we've alluded to this along the way and whilst we've talked about a, a bit of a worst case case story that in front of us but even where families Other nuclear family, everyone gets on, they're all very happy. When a parent dies, um, or both parents die, you put a pot of money in front of siblings, all of a sudden people, and it won't be everyone, but all of a sudden people can actually become quite selfish. And despite what the wishes might be, despite that it might have been clear, and they may get on famously throughout the course of their life, you dangle something a pot of money in front of them and they suddenly don't become the same reasonable person that you once knew so it's not just about planning for families that might be a bit dysfunctional it's about planning for any family you don't know the influence that spouses of children could have the little voices in the ears behind the scenes are sometimes more dangerous than the family members themselves
1: A lot of clients make the mistake of thinking that their children will listen to them no matter what.
0: One might assume the more money, the more issues. In John's case, we're talking millions. But the experts say that this is not necessarily the case.
1: Sometimes, both Shirley and I, in situations where we have families where they're arguing over an amount of money that that we would consider not so important, but it, it sometimes goes back to those days when the kids were younger and what we call the fights in the sandpit... And they will argue over a a small amount as well.
0: It's clear that mishandled estate planning has impact beyond the financial, with possibly great emotional consequences as well. Leaving it uncertain, legally, could provide the crack that causes conflict. So, how do we avoid it? What are the most common traps we fall into? Spoiler alert, it's the paperwork.
2: It really revolves around paperwork either the the instructions are not clear or they've not been updated, so not reviewed regularly where personal circumstances are changed, or they've not been drafted in accordance with either the trust deed or the rules that exist. So people try and do it themselves without seeking advice or it's done as a set and forget. So uh, a recent example is they've got this lovely... Um, binding death benefit nomination that talks about leaving super to four children, all of whom are identified as minors at the time and it talks about how that money is to be dealt with. The problem is because uh, it's been some 15, 20 years later, those children are no longer minors and the proposed structure of the nomination just doesn't work because the rules have changed. So, you know, setting and forgetting is not going to cut it.
0: So, You've got to know the rules, but neither Paul or Shirley judge you if that proves a bit of a challenge. The reason that we, Paul and I, advocate
2: for having these conversations beforehand, apart from the clarity, is that uh, quite often the superannuation and the tax rules don't actually seem to make a lot of common sense. So what you think might be perfectly straightforward or logical isn't necessarily the way the rules work. Um, Paul and I work with these rules day in, day out. We do understand the intricacies and nuances and the constant changes, but it is important for people to, to consider it because they don't always make sense or seem logical. So in order to achieve what you want, you do need to make sure that you've, you've got that advice, you've had those conversations with your, your advisors and also the conversations with your family to, to make sure that everyone understands what should
0: happen. And that's probably the best way forward. Does the current system, with all these ever-changing laws, does it really benefit people?
1: I guess the rules are are there for a good reason. It's no different than having speed cameras on every other light post on your way down the freeway. They do give clarity and guidelines. They don't often make sense. Um, I guess that's where people like Shirley and I come in to help clients navigate down the highway.
2: I agree. It doesn't seem fair a lot of the time. It does seem inequitable, but as you say, the rules are there for a reason. It's far more dangerous to not understand what the rules are, what is required and how it all works and leave it up to chance and wind up with your case story scenario where the tax office wants us to take at least
0: you know, about 50% of the fund
2: assets.
0: Back in the day, everyone would assume that you need a lawyer when you're going to sort out your affairs, but... With superannuation in the picture, you've really got to have an accountant there well, as
1: well. An accountant and a lawyer who specialises in superannuation as well. Most lawyers would be across the issues of superannuation, but a lot of clients just by coincidence or misfortune assume that their superannuation is included in that and unless they ask the right questions of their lawyer, it could get overlooked.
0: It could really save a lot of pain and headache for your family later on if you get an expert in super exactly. involved
1: That's while right. you're still
0: alive. Yes, um, mm-hmm. It's much easier to sort these things out
1: That's right. before you die. Well, most people just assume that things will fall out how they intended it to happen.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, when, where there's a will, there's a relative usually,
0: yeah. and it may
1: not always work the way you intend
0: Thank you to our expert guests, Paul Rafton and Shirley Schaefer. You're listening to In Business with BDO. Remember to subscribe and rate this show in your favourite podcast app and send us your comments and questions to podcast at bdo.com.au. I've been Jennifer Mary and we'll see you next time when we explore another topic essential to the way we do business and live our modern lives.